0: Welcome to the 14th in our series of podcasts. In this latest edition of the Encephalitis podcast, I am so thrilled to be joined by Mike Day. Mike is a director and cinematographer whose documentaries have been highly acclaimed by audiences around the world. In 2011, he was finishing his first film, The Guga Hunters of Ness, and Mike became ill with encephalitis. He lost the ability to walk and was even told that he might not be able to work again. However, during his recovery, Mike threw himself into his next film, The Islands and the Whales, a true labor of love, which was filmed over five years in the Faroe Islands, and this was a film that I watched eagerly when it aired and at that point had absolutely no idea how close my connection was with the filmmaker. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have Mike with us today to talk about his work, his recovery and what his next plans are. So thanks so much for joining us, Mike.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's, it's great. You've been with me through the journey in many ways. We had, I have. Uh, your, your your newsletters and Christmas cards. My mum gets your Christmas cards every year and I have your cookbook too, so...
0: I have been with you on this journey and I didn't even know it when I watched the film a few years back, sat here, which we're gonna come onto a little bit more. I had absolutely no idea, of course, that I'd be sat here, um, you know, a few years later doing a podcast with you. Yeah. Um, so anyway, welcome. Um, Look, you know, I'm going to I'm going to cut right into it. Um, whilst I was doing a bit of research mm. for this podcast, I was really struck to discover that you were in fact a lawyer in your earlier working life. Um, then you left to film your first documentary. That's a huge career change. How what happened? How come you made that leap?
1: Well, I was doing I was writing films and doing photography and, and doing sound engineering and music and all kinds of things before I was a lawyer, so maybe that was the the diversion. Um, it was my, my gap year was being a lawyer, maybe. But uh, <laughs> um, I I really had been a jack of all trades, and certainly a master of none in that period. And then cinema kind of I I, I fell in love with it. it, embodied all of those different creative things that I was doing. Um, unfortunately, I discovered this while I was a lawyer, so I was uh, at the weekends going off to make films with my brother in Scotland whenever I could, and I would get up. And, six in the morning and do an hour before work and rush home to write and edit. And I sort of tested that it wasn't just a phase. And then one day I, I got a camera and I quit my job and I moved to a boat in Scotland and set sail to find a story which was naive enough that it might just work. And uh, it, it, it did and the BBC commissioned the film a few months later, um, which was a dream come true. And making the film, skipping over the making of the film is to skip over quite an ordeal because we sailed out into the North Atlantic to the last uh, 10 men in Europe who were allowed to hunt seabirds. And we, we I, I grew up sailing as did my brother. So we were qualified skippers. My father was a, a seaman, so we'd done it every year. And um, we got the privilege to, to film these guys that they hadn't let anyone film them for fifty years. But then, <laughs> then there was a twist, of course.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, look, let's talk a little bit about that film, which was, um, I hope you've got to correct any pronunciations I get wrong here. The Guga Hunters of Ness, right? And as you said, you followed these 10 men from the Isle of Lewis as they set sail for. And how do you pronounce this? Sulisgir? gear, yeah. Sulisgir. which is an island in the middle of the Atlantic um, Ocean. Um, And they hunt gannets, which is this prized delicacy in nests. So, you know, what on earth interested you in this subject? Well,
1: I was initially making a a less uh, adventurous film. It was about crofting and the fact that there were all these displaced people from way back from the 18th century on the land who'd fought for the right for their patch on its earth to be protected and not to be exploited and not to have rent driven up and pushed off their land. And 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 that's what crofting was. And it, it kind of gone full circle. And in the in the aftermath of the financial crisis you had people having foreclosures again on their land and 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 you can't have a mortgage on a land with a croft because it would sit above it on the land registry. So you had people decrofting and it was it seemed like we'd gone sort of full circle and that um, more financial interests were taking over uh, against the best interests of the people and um, and so I was making a film about that about just how that way of life was being encroached upon um, by greed essentially in many cases and um, benign things like holiday homes and I found these people who were still keeping up this tradition and were in love with it. Every year they gave up their jobs to go and it's, a, it's hard, hard work and they go off and stay on essentially a rocky outcrop in the middle of the ocean and hunt and pickle seabirds for two weeks and build them into beautiful cairns. Um, and um, they, they held on to this, not as a tradition, as something they did in a contemporary sense, and it was life. <laughs> um, and, and so special. And, 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 I, and they said, of course, no, to start with, I wasn't allowed to film it. Film crews were going there every year from all over the world and we weren't to do it. And then eventually we did some filming with them about um, the crofting aspect of things um, that was close to their heart because they were all crofters. Um, we were invited for a pint of Guinness in the pub at the end of the day. And then, and then he said, uh, the leader of the hunt, Dodds said, uh, if you can sail there yourself, and look after yourself, then you can film us. I'm not sure that they ever thought that we would get there <laughs> repeatedly in our boat. It was a 20 hour sail out, out there in the boat. We chartered, the sailing boat that I was living on and sailing around was tiny. I mean, it was not gonna make it out there. It was 26 feet long. Um, so we chartered something a little bit bigger, which repeatedly fell to pieces, uh, the danger of charter boats. And um, so it was quite an adventure. We, uh, we broached and capsized out there, their boat nearly sank once and we got to get helicopter rescued off it and uh, all kinds of dramas on the high seas, tales which haven't yet fully been told. <laughs> the behind the scenes was quite a, a story of, of quest and a voyage of great personal change as well. <laughs>
0: Well, well, look, I mean, I think you're right. There was a lot going on behind the scenes, you know, but as you finished filming and were in post-production, that was when you became ill with encephalitis. Um, what happened?
1: Well, yeah, after surviving the sea monsters, um, the last week of the editor, I thought I had a cold or a flu-y thing or something. So I said to the editor, I'm just going to take a couple of days off and knock this thing on the head. I didn't realise that it would be a bit more... Maybe about 400 days off. Um, but um, yeah, it started like a sort of, I suppose, a toothache behind the eyeballs. And uh, it was an unusual feeling, but it wasn't so alarming. But of course, you're not in your full faculties while well, these things are happening. And so it crept in. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up and I was, I was in a hospital and I'd been there a week. My family were all around me looking very worried and all my leg muscles had gone and I had lots of uh, lots of, uh, uh, drips in me and things. So in my feet, in fact, they were all going into my feet unusually because I'd been trying to take them out of my hands. So yeah, and uh, I, I, my first thing was, my first instinct was I, I'm, I'm supposed to be in Madrid next week because I had been actually invited to my, to the first ever kind of film workshop type thing I was ever going to do Uh, and the nurse looked at me she she was going to cry because I didn't realize that I'd been unconscious for a week and I certainly wasn't going to an airport anytime soon so yeah it it was that and I was there for another good couple of weeks after that I was in hospital for three and a half weeks I left early actually because I wanted some fresh vegetables and better food.
0: Well, you know, we've spoken before, and and I know when we chatted, you, you you talked about having to kind of almost, you know, relearn things again, learning to walk again, and you mm. were even told at one point that that you you probably wouldn't ever return to work. You know, can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that was really I, I remember from that period was I wasn't allowed to Google what I had because they d- they didn't they wanted I don't know there was it was a very strange. Time of, um, you, I suppose after that acute phase, you don't know, you, you don't, you don't. There's, there's so many unknowns. Um, and at that point, I was still being pushed around in a wheelchair, and I couldn't really read. I would read the same sentence over and over again because it just wasn't sort of sticking. And my speech pointing out from the swelling, so I had a patch on one eye. Um, and yeah I mean one doctor who let's say his bedside manner could have been a little bit more humanitarian just basically told me to give up and that that's how it was going to be forever and I had to accept it to which I rebelled strongly against I think I might have sworn quite strongly um, because even in that state I knew that was a stupid thing to say because how can you even know how can you know that um, so I was trying to hold on to the positive thinking and um, you know you don't know how far you can get at that point but you're certainly not going to give up So yeah, the learning to walk again and things like that were the most tangible, the physical bits obviously you can gauge when they come back and that's reassuring. Um, It was a while later that my mum went to an encephalitis society meeting actually and um, a girl there told her to tell me that the thing that had shocked her the most was how long it took to get fully better. And I think that was something really profound that stayed with me that helped me not despair too much because it took well over three years for me to get better I mean or five maybe I don't know but to, you know the last percentages are hard to gauge and and of course it's it's peaks and troughs and different frequencies of them but and then um, probably still is so it's um, but the optimism and the, and the, the ability of that elasticity to 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 reroute and to to get back to things was was um yeah something that that was passed on to me at that stage which gave me which gave me hope but also gave me a realistic hope that it was going to take time and so, otherwise you would you know after one year you would think this is it but it, it wasn't
0: well, you're living proof that it that it isn't and i, I know that there's many people who are going to be watching this or listening to this who are going to be reassured to know um that there is um uh, life after encephalitis which mm. obviously is something um mm. that i've you know researched and written about extensively mm. yeah. but at what point did your did your mind return to filmmaking and, and what was what was going to be your your next project which was the island and the whales so uh, at what point did did you turn to that mentally
1: there was a really natural um not conscious uh, plan with it that for months i could not open a laptop and look at it for anything i mean i just couldn't i couldn't have thought about doing that so that and then there was there was i suppose a hunger to see if i could still do it um and then there was a sitting down and the emotional moment the first time I pushed on on the computer and because I'd still not finished editing the Google Hunters and this and the BBC were amazing. They were so um, patient and understanding of the, of the predicament and, and just said, "You know, give it to us when you can, which, we, which meant maybe it's gonna be two years, who knows. Um, so I started doing maybe five minutes a day and that was all I could do. And then I'd start to get electric shock. I'd get a kind of, not not like pins and needles, but sort of similar, but not as annoying as pins and needles, but like little tickles of electricity in my tips of my nose, tips of my fingers and toes and my extremities. If I, if I drank coffee I, or overdid it in any way, if I was tired or run down, if I walked too much, um, I would get these electric shocks. And that was my... Um, that was my signal that I needed to rest. And really, sleep was the only thing that would sort of slightly recover that. When I was in the countryside, I could, I mean, it depended I, through the stage, I could gauge my recovery from that. But I got I got them for, for years, so I really overdo it. Now I still get them. But um, that was a good measure. So eventually, yeah, I mean, editing 10 minutes a day, it took quite a while to finish a film at that rate. <laughs> But I, I edited for, for some months and it slowly increased as I could do it. The thing is, and, and this was the, the point of electric shocks really is, that there was a natural cutoff point. So I could push myself to that point and then and then it would stop. But it, it, it got more and more as time went on yeah and
0: it's important isn't it to know when that point is and and that's one of the things Mm. that we talk about in encephalitis recovery is that you can do you can do little bits of things and then have a long rest and then and then do a little Mm. bit of something and then a long rest and then eventually Mm. the 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 amount of time that you spend doing something expands and the time that you rest kind of shrinks Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah and it's a good lesson for everyone who's overdoing it in this world you know, That's to an extent true. we all need to be uh, mindful of, of of the impact that, that everything has on us as well. I, I mean, I felt when I went to London at one point, and it was about nine months after I'd had in- in Encephalias, and it was one of my first trips, we were going to record a soundtrack. And I'd been feeling okay in myself while I was in Scotland in the town. and walking on the beach. And it, I come from a town where the, it was a convalescent town after the war for people recovering. And, and I could feel why after, and I went to London and uh, I could only stay awake for about two hours a day because it just the central impact of being there was just, I mean, there's your, the, the antenna of your system. It's just, uh, it was, it was difficult.
0: Yeah. Um, Do you think returning to work helped in any way in your recovery?
1: I think that there was an amount of denial and fear that my dreams had finally come true actually, that I had been a lawyer for five years at that point. And um, um, I'd finally got a BBC commission. I mean, I'd only been a filmmaker for a few months and I got this, it was just a fairy tale and I'd gone off on this adventure and it was the start of a new life. And then it just got plucked away from me at the final, in the third act of the film, you know, we were about to hand the edit over, we were nearly finished and then boom, hit by a thunderbolt and uh, told the game over, uh, was you know, what I was told by some people. So um, I I was determined that that wasn't gonna be the case because I knew there was a chance that it wouldn't be the case. I knew there was a chance that I could get fully better. Um, and actually it wasn't also that I got better. It, uh, from the illness, it it changed me in a profound way that was better than how I was before. So ultimately the whole experience was, was a positive thing. Um, but there's those years in between where you're in a kind of uh, a slightly frozen state, still recovering to get back to yourself. I always thought of the old camera the diopters where uh, you have the focus and there's two semicircles and they're, they're, they're like this actually and they come together when everything's in focus. I always kind of had a sense of what I should be able to do and could see what I couldn't do, which was a sort of outer body experience in a sense and it was a very strange and so work in a way represented that I could gauge what I should be able to do so I was I was determined to um, to go back, but there's a there's a scene at the beginning of the next film, which was the first time I pushed record on a camera since having encephalitis, and they told me not to work for a year, to take a year off. Well, and I kind of didn't because I just sort of finished editing that, the the hunters during that that year. But then I went away the following March to the Faroe Islands to to see if it was feasible to make this this film about um, the, the pilot whale hunting and. Um, they were also seabird hunters. We'd, we'd met these ferry sailors while making the Guga hunters. And they are the only other people who hunt gannets, and they're allowed because they're not in the EU. But um, um, I, I went up there and discovered this story that the pollution was impairing the cognitive ability of, of, of children before they were born and in the womb. And, and that marine pollution, that was a big part of the story I was trying to tell, was affecting people's brains as I was rebuilding my own. So there was, there was a. Uh, of a strong connection there. And by coincidence, the doctor who'd done all the research, Dr. Parvaya, for 30 years, he'd researched his own population to discover this. He was living next door to the house I was in. So he popped over for a cup of tea and uh, was shocked to hear that I was recovering from encephalitis. But that film then became the carrot on the stick for me to prove to myself or to find out if I still had an inmate to make a film like that again.
0: So I think, Mike. Also, when we were chatting, we you, you mentioned something to me around confidence, and I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that and and your recovery from encephalitis.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things to go was was confidence because you don't maybe um, you, you retreat into yourself in a way because your your short term memory. Is forgetting things. You make faux paths, and you become you become a little bit more introverted. And I think that one of the biggest struggles for me was um, was rebuilding rebuilding that. I remember doing public speaking early on at a pitch, and I was terrified that I was going to just forget basic words because I could remember how to talk about what I was pitching, but I might forget how to say the word milk and have to describe it as you know, white stuff that comes out of cows and people would be looking at you, like, well, you... and and from the outside, you might be articulate enough, but to to, ha- to be walking, you're running it mentally to do it, which is exhausting. And, and so it, it's invisible in that way. And, and in a sense, when I, I still couldn't walk that well, it was easier because people could see something was wrong. And then the years after that, and also because of the career I'd chosen, because I was at the beginning of it, I was hiding a lot of that um, because I, I wasn't sure how people would, would trust me with what I had to do. Um, and so for, for years and years, I was uh, yeah, trying to trying to sort of almost keep it a secret. And, and, and that's, that was one of the more challenging parts of the recovery was perception. Um, and also not really being able to say to people who don't know there's anything wrong with you that you're struggling that you've got electric shocks in your face because you've overdone it and you need to go I mean it's 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 difficult for anyone to understand unless they're going through it
0: yeah and because I guess you know like you most people after encephalitis in many cases They look the same as they looked before, right?
1: Mm, mm, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Um, it was. It was. uh, Yeah. So your yeah, yeah, the confidence goes, and and um, and it take it took time to rebuild that. Um, Even now, public speaking, I think there's still like a little bit of something in the back of my head. Am I going to forget how to say a really normal word? Um, But yeah. Time, time heals and the elasticity of the brain is uh, an amazing thing
0: you know you you skipped over that a little bit but the island and the wales was was released in 2016 um and as you say it could it could have been and and here's what i thought it was going to be when i sat down to watch it mm. on tv with my sea shepherd hoodie on and all of <laughs> it it could have been you know um this really contentious look at at the Faroe islanders who are a community who still hunt pilot whales um, and that does play a part in the story, but as you say, um, as, and as I found out when I was watching the film, it's actually looking at this this important impact of pollution on the community, and also how their relationship with the whales um, is affected by this. So, so tell us a bit. Tell us a bit more about this. You know, tell us about the crooks of the island and and, and the whales of the movie. Well,
1: that's it. Uh, I mean, the, as all these stories are they're more complex and contradictory than we might like to squeeze them into the good guys and the bad guys in the Hollywood movie and and that had been done a lot before there was also an astounding amount of misinformation out there about it that it was a festival or a rites of passage to become a man or all these things so but for me the whales were the red flag in the in the in the bullfight those blood red blaze bays were a way to drop people's attention to a bigger story. They were just this very visceral way to have a thin end of a wedge to get people to realize what we were doing to the planet. Because we were giving all our attention to this very uh, visually spectacle and very bloody thing. Of course, we're killing billions of animals behind closed doors, that, arguably in a far more gruesome way, mechanized and all the rest. But um, I, I wasn't ever trying to change anyone's minds on the whale hunting. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's that battle is, is uh entrenched the, the the whalers are never going to stop whaling because someone tells them not to and the anti-whalers are never going to change their minds from being anti-whaling i mean it was it's kind of a locked situation that but what was more interesting to me was that gray zone around how we do live with it i mean that is on one hand it, it, it could be said to be cruel and uh, barbaric but it's a local sustainable way of living, how do we live with the natural world? What is our impact upon it? And, um, and there, right in the whales, they were the messenger. They had that message in them. They were so full of mercury from us, burning coal or getting gold, which God knows getting gold is hardly an essential activity. Um, it, it was so, they were so polluted that it was toxic and damaging the, the brain impairment of uh, during fetal development or early childhood. Not to mention what it's doing to those animals themselves, and PCBs and PSoFs and at least polychlorinated biphenyls and things that were completely man-made, artificial substances that have a half-life of decades that lives in these things. You know, once that's in you, it's in you for your life. Um, it's uh, hideous and insidious, and and for me that was the bigger story. But it, normally it's not that sexy; it doesn't get that much attention. So it felt a bit like the whales were uh, were. We're bringing us this message in a way.
0: Yeah, um, as you say, we're killing them anyway. You know, the the immediate slaughter of them by the islanders or other people that do that is is yeah. almost is is a distraction almost a you know a kind yeah. of red herring for want of a better word. But um, because yeah. we're killing them and and all the other animals on the planet um, anyway as a result of yeah. our behaviors as humans. Tell me a little bit. So, what what's happening to the islanders in terms of eating this uh, mercury uh, poisoned uh, flesh of the whales? Then, what what are they experiencing as a result?
1: There's nothing acute. It's just that it's it's across a population basis, you can see a reduction in IQ of one or two IQ points. There's there's all sorts of other th- um, things it can do in terms of uh, immunity response, or or perhaps. Um, um, there's uh, there's, uh, there's lots of other, um, let's just say peripheral, but I think compared to cognitive impairment they're fairly peripheral like uh, reduction in sperm count or uh, immunity and things like that. Um, it, it, it's, it's this long-term low-dose exposure which was the shocking thing and of course it's a death by a thousand cuts and it's what we're all sleepwalking into with microplastics being everywhere and all these other things is that we're only these man-made chemicals have only been in the world, they've only existed for maybe 50, 70 years or whatever. So we're, and if the study takes 30 years, we're just now waking up to what these things are doing and the consequences of them. So the specifics to the pharaohs, I think it was interesting, just that you can already map the beginning of these things, this wave that's coming, um, that's affecting us. Um, then the cognitive part was scary, obviously. For, for me personally, I was going through that at the time, but um, that what we eat in one of the most pristine places in the world could cause cognitive impairment. God knows we need every IQ point we can get right now. So
0: well, <laughs> driving it down
1: uh, by polluting things just seemed doubly stupid.
0: Well look, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how did you build up trust with with the islanders? Because, you know, especially because their traditions had, had drawn criticism, as as we already know from from animal activist groups. You know, how did you build that rapport? And and actually, did the fact that you were recovering from encephalitis play a part in that at all?
1: I, may, perhaps, yeah. I mean, I was um, I, I drank a lot of schnapps and ate a lot of seabirds as as part of the way I gained access. I was only I wasn't meant to drink alcohol for a year, so I, I was a bit of a lightweight as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, that certainly, I mean, we, also the film that I'd made before, I mean, it, I, I arrived in the islands not even sure if it was even physically possible to make this film because a whale hunt can happen in any one of 17 bays, you'd have to race there and you really need the cooperation of the locals. And It happened by chance at the meeting of the Feli, the, the Pilot Whale Hunting Association was happening the, the, the month I was there. So they invited me along to show five minutes of the Guga Hunters because they were all um, seabird eaters, but more fulmers and guillemots and puffins. But there's one island on the far west coast called Mesnes where they do eat the gannets as well. But it's, it's a real uh, delicacy there because there, there's a lot less nesting pairs, I think 6,000 compared to uh, thousands on Silask, so or tens of thousands. So um, they don't get that many. And the, the, the man S. Burn. Uh, who became a good friend he flew over for, and hit by helicopter to see to come into the capital to see these this bit of the film but they thought he thought the whole film was being shown and I felt terrible. he'd flown all this way to see to see the film but in the end they ended up showing the whole film with a Faroese guy who tried to film the Guga Hunters two years prior to that but he, he hadn't been given permission and he ended up standing on the stage translating film the, the film. Uh, live uh, and they watched the whole thing and um, they were very skeptical because there had been filmmakers go there saying that they were making a film about living with nature and it turned into be activists and they grabbed the engine during a whale hunt and things like this so they were very very wary Um, and they were all sitting like this at the start and by the end they were all um, asking questions and they asked a lot of questions but yeah being um, having a bit of a seafaring background but also having filmed those uh, seabird hunters in Scotland certainly helped they could see what we've done before so um, people can judge things for themselves.
0: Right and and for people who are listening or, or watching the podcast um, Mike and Ava are not suggesting that drinking lots of peach snaps is um, should form part of your recovery um, so just to be clear that's our disclaimer uh, also, on, on this video. <laughs>
1: I should have a disclaimer as well. It wasn't peach schnapps. It was uh, it was something that tasted like petrol. That's uh, I think it's just the schnapps not the peach. So
0: no <laughs> <Those> schnapps, okay? <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned something earlier um, about um, I think if I understood you correctly, almost alluding to um, things being better despite the fact that you've had encephalitis in spite of despite I don't know um, and many of our members who lean towards the arts and creativity do see changes in their work so I'm curious as to whether you think encephalitis has changed you as a filmmaker do you do you see the world differently now
1: well I hadn't I always say to people when I'm well I, the moment, brief moments I've taught film that 95 percent of doing a documentary like this isn't about the filmmaking, it's about how you see things, your relationship with the people who are in front of the camera, it's much, uh, the filmmaking is the means to the ends really, but but after, I mean, I hadn't done much of it before I had in encephalitis, but, um, but my worldview changed significantly and I kind of prayed to every God there was when I was uh, in that first year that if I uh, had another chance that I wouldn't waste it, you know, because I I really wasn't in a good way for a while. So I, it, it it definitely, I appreciate, I appreciate being alive. I just wanted to eat the world after I I got to a point where I could get up and go. And uh, it, it definitely, it gave me a completely different perspective. I think you feel really grateful for that second chance. And also um, there's a desire to to not to waste it and to do something with it. Mm
0: -hmm. I'd already
1: left the job that I wasn't super happy doing. So um, I I felt like fortunate that I was out. I felt immensely grateful that I was able to still finish that film and start the other one. It would be five years to to make that Ante Noelle. So I didn't really know until I was sitting in the premiere in in Toronto with, um, two people who'd been through that journey with me, and one of them, uh, someone who became a guardian angel at the Sundance Institute, Kristen, she turned to me and said, remember when you started this, what you were thinking you might not be able to do. And just, just as <laughs> this came up, and so it, it hit me that, of course, she, she'd known that how I'd been when I started that, because um, by the end of that five years I was in a different place. but you know it was important to remember that yeah I didn't know that I was going to be able to make that film when I started that so
0: well we're pleased pleased that you did (laughs) those films were heavily influenced by the ocean and and films on islands is there something about the sea and island life that's special to you that draws you
1: I mean I grew up with that my father was a seaman and I, I was in the in the RNLI and the Scottish Sailing Squad when I was 11 years old. I was always sailing and, and every summer we'd go off sailing around and so it was my comfort zone. I was being on a, on a boat and that that was uh, I guess why I felt like I should do that but I also probably after being a lawyer in London wanted to have an excuse to go spoofing off around the west coast of Scotland on a boat trying to find a story at the same time <laughs> it was a nice way to do it. So um, it was a return to roots in a way, um, but also a yearning for community probably follows through a lot of my work. I think people can be very uh, scattered these days, and, and we 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 seek that. When you're in it, you want out of it, and when you're out of it, you want into it. It's one of the many contradictions.
0: Well, a lesson that I think we've we've learnt um, over the last. 14 months, perhaps more than ever in terms mm. of, you know, the importance of other people in, in our lives. Mm. Um, mm. Look, w- where can people go to, to watch um, The Island and the Whales or, or any of your other movies? Is that something people after watching this uh, or hearing this podcast, is there somewhere they can go?
1: Um, Yeah, they're both on Vimeo in the UK. They are also on iTunes and Amazon and things, perhaps not in the UK, but Vimeo certainly in the UK, they're on those, they're on there. And and Amazon, I believe as well.
0: Your next documentary is called, The Poetry of Cowboys. Now that sounds to me like it's set on dry land. Um, What can you tell us about that? Do do cowboys even do poetry? Is that a thing? (laughs)
1: Yeah. It, it was a surprise, I think, to some of the cowboys too. I, I was driving from San Francisco to Utah and I stopped in this town called Elko in Nevada. Where in the next morning I woke up and there was a poster for the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, that could be that's, what is that? It's a great American adventure. And uh, there's some wonderful characters in it, that's for sure.
0: Well, I can't wait to see it. You know, Mike, I don't know, just sitting here talking with you for a little while, your life seems to be this extraordinary list of coincidences. At least to me.
1: (laughs) There are, yes, there's a fair amount of serendipity, that's for sure, which I'm I'm grateful for. I was kind of catapulted out of bed after I had encephalitis. It definitely propelled me forward that uh, the recovery kept going in a way. (laughs)
0: well look i've just got a couple of questions as as we Mm. draw to a close i've taken so much of your time but what's next for you and for intrepid cinema mike
1: well i actually i am i have been writing for a while it was different people have said that i should i've done a documentary about my recovery from encephalitis and things but i think um for me i I was interested in exploring something slightly beyond my own personal experience of it, but using my personal, personal experience of uh, that existential uh, moment that you know, you are being you are your memories and, and and how we interact with that and how we uh, how we how we build ourselves through that and and for me then uh, the route back to self. Uh, was a, a big part of it. So I wanted to make a film about someone someone else. <laughs> so I'm writing a fictional version of it, but um, interweaving my personal experiences of it. Uh, and yeah, I hope to start writing that as soon as I've uh, finished making the cowboy, cowboy movie. So... It's well, fictional, we, but it's maybe more, more real than the documentaries in a way.
0: <laughs> We've already chatted a bit about this behind mm. the scenes, haven't we? So,
1: yeah, I, I'm exciting. excited that we might cooperate on aspects of it. And so that's, that's good.
0: Yeah. Watch this Cat. space, everybody. So <laughs> It's that's set
1: it. in the 18th century Highlands. It's a, it's a Jacobite tale. So we're, um, even and I are going time traveling.
0: We are. We're gonna be like Doctor Who. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's all for another podcast anyway. But um look, is there anything else that you'd like to say um before we bring the podcast to a close, Mike?
1: Well, I, I I would like to say thank you to to you for all you're doing because it can be very lonely and isolated experience recovering from something like this and um, it was always a great comfort to have the information that you were providing and just the sense of community again and I know it 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 helped me and it helped my mum a lot as well and in some ways you know the people around you go through more than you do as well so there's a there's a there's a lot um, that you help with and so thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. It touched me a lot when we spoke last time. I know you said you told your mum that you were going to have a Zoom call with me, and she was super excited for you.
1: <laughs> well, just after that as well, I found the cookbook. I'd, I'd forgotten I had the Encephalitis Society cookbook here as well.
0: <laughs> Who knew? Um <laughs> Look, we've covered an awful lot. We're deeply, deeply grateful to you for taking the time to chat with us, Mike. Um, The Encephalitis Society services remain unaffected. So if any of you are listening to this or watching this and you need any support or information, um, our teams remain at your service. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details, or you can chat online or send an email or whatever you need to do. Um, As always, if you can support our work, Um, It's a really challenging time uh, for us um, as a result of COVID, but please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Most of all, keep washing your hands, keep your distance, stay safe. And if you can get vaccinated, oh, and please don't forget to watch uh, the Island and the whales. You won't regret it. Thanks everybody.
1: Thank you.